You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in the book of Revelation this morning. Let's just commit this to the Lord. Father, we just uh, ask now as we look into the text of this book once again that you would uh, anoint my words, Lord, that you would open our, our ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Revelation, this is the, what many people know as the Apocalypse, a book that is much neglected in the church and much abused in the culture, obviously dealing with future things in many ways, so that's why a lot of people, there's a lot of urban legend around this book and I'm hoping as we go through it we can set a lot of that straight. But we did chapter one, you remember we saw the glorified risen king, that amazing picture of Jesus as he will come back to take back his world, basically. But before he does that, he has a message for his church. And last week, we started to look at the seven letters that he writes to the church. We looked at Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey today. That was a church that he commended for their uh, diligence in testing things by the word of God, for not allowing false teachers to come into their midst. But he also had that word against them where he said, you've left your first love. And we talked a lot about that. And now we're going to look at the second church today. So this will be the church in Smyrna. And I'll be frank with you, this is quite a hard one to teach on because this is a persecuted church. So we will talk about some things that are uncomfortable to talk about, particularly from the comfort of our Western pulpits in many ways. But I'm hoping I can shine some light into some areas and give us a bit of an understanding of why these things are happening. So let's read the Word of God. Do you know what? It's only four verses, this letter. So I'm going to read the whole thing. And let's, we don't do this that often, but let's all stand as we read the Word of God together, please, and we do this. So Revelation 2. Verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. Thank you. Sit down, please. So, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, if you want to remember where these seven churches are, that's a map of modern-day Turkey. Smyrna is up there just above Ephesus. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a leading city uh, in the days of the first Roman Empire. It was another port city. Port cities obviously brought trade through them, which brings wealth, which brings all sorts of other stuff too. And we actually don't know huge much about ancient Smyrna in the sense of archaeology because there is a massive city on, it's called uh, Izmir today in Turkey. It's a hugely densely populated city, so they haven't been able to do much archaeological uh, excavation there because there's so many people living there. So there's only uh, a few of the ruins of ancient Smyrna. You have here, this is the Agora, the market square, um, and the remains of a temple there that you can see as they often had those pillars and those columns. Uh, There's an excavation of a theatre that's been ongoing for a while. These are pretty much all we have of ancient Smyrna right now but this is where it was. However, in its heyday, ancient writers write about Smyrna, and it was actually referred to as the loveliest of all cities, ancient cities in this 
Asia Minor. This is a re reproduction that someone's done there. As you can see, the, the crown-shaped port harbour and the theatre in the foreground. That is an ancient Roman city at this time. Now, if you come from the harbour, the city of Smyrna had a massive hill at the back and it had a, a, a round sort of semicircular shape buildings and temples, public buildings and temples to Zeus, uh, a temple to em the Roman emperors as they used to do emperor worship there. And interestingly, they used to call that the crown of Smyrna. This was referred to as the crown of Smyrna. It was a source of civic pride amongst the community. This beautiful crown-shaped uh, collection of buildings and temples to various different gods. That is the crown of Smyrna, which is why I believe you have this reference to crowns also in this in this letter here. Smyrna was a place of great learning. It was a very sophisticated city. The famous Greek author Homer, uh, who wrote the Iliad, wrote the Trojan Wars. If you've seen the, the film Troy, that's all that where that story comes from. There's a man called Homer. He was born in uh, Smyrna here. Smyrna was also well known. It had the first temple. It had the privilege. It, what they basically did is when cities in the Roman Empire wanted to build a temple to a particular god or goddess, they would have to bid with the Roman government, and it was a prestigious thing. If you won the right to build that temple, it would obviously bring money and tourism and everything like that to your city. That's how it worked. This is a temple to the goddess of Rome. Now, this is one of the unusual gods because it's clearly the goddess of Rome was clearly an invention of the Roman Empire for well, reasons that are very obvious. They called it Roma. This was a female deity, and the female deity personified the city of Rome, and by extension, the Roman state itself. And people would worship the Roman state in that respect, and all of the values that Rome had. So as you can see, this is a great propaganda piece for the Roman government, that you personify all of your values and principles in a god, and then you demand your subjects to worship it. And if they do not worship it, it's a clear sign that they're an enemy of the state and they can be dealt with accordingly. That is kind of how this worked. And as we've talked about previously, it was very popular for Roman emperors to also deify themselves so that they would receive worship. And this also allowed them to do that because they were... Roma was the divine protector of the Roman Empire and the empires then were then standing as proxy for her and serving her and they were also part of this divine pantheon. Therefore, they could have their own temples too. And that's why often in temples to Roma, you'll also find temples to various different Roman emperors at the time who fancied a little bit of worship themselves. Now, what, as this often is the case, what begun as voluntary, going and worshipping the emperors, soon became compulsory as the empire became more and more dictatorial. What you would basically have to do is go into the temple once a year and on the altar you would burn a pinch of incense and you would say Caesar is Lord. And that is basically what, what it involved. So if you had no other aff religious affiliation, that wouldn't really be a problem to you. You'd get your citizenship, you could still go and work and, and live in the city and enjoy all of uh, the luxuries that Rome was providing for you at this time. However, it was also a very good way to identify people, like I said, who were not willing to burn a pinch of incense and say that Caesar is Lord. And of course, for the early Christian community in this city, this made them very vulnerable because they would not give the term Lord to anyone else except Jesus Christ because they are commanded to say Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you remember when we looked in the book of Philippians 
It said that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That statement was given as against the backdrop of a Roman Empire where citizens were forced to say that Caesar is Lord and thus they were allowed to live in the city. However, the Christians could not do that and this led to a very uh, difficult situation for them. Now what's also interesting about this letter that we read in Revelation, written by John the Apostle, who is the, the, the person who wrote the book of Revelation. He also lived in Ephesus, like we talked about, but he had a young disciple in the early church who was a man named Polycarp. You may have heard of Polycarp. He was a very famous, one of the most important early church fathers after the age of the apostles. He was discipled by the apostle John himself, and it was actually the apostle John who appointed Polycarp a bishop in Smyrna. So Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Fifty years after the writing of this book, Polycarp was killed in Smyrna because he refused to burn incense on the altar to Caesar. And there's a very famous interaction between the magistrates at this time and Polycarp that happened in that theatre that I showed you that they were excavating. Basically, as I forget the Roman emperor who was in charge at this time, but there was a purge going on of Christianity. Um, they were trying to get rid of it at this time. Polycarp was a very famous bishop. He was in his 90s, I believe, at this time. And he was hiding out. He'd been persuaded to hide out in a farm. The Roman government eventually tracked him down. Someone, as is always the case, someone told, someone grasped him up, told where they were. And he came. And when the magistrates arrived to arrest him, they were not expecting to find a man in his mid-80s or early 90s. And they didn't really quite know what to do. They allowed him to pray for a little bit, and then they took him to the magistrates, they took him to the theatre, and the bishops basically wanted to let him go, and they said, all you need to do is just burn a bit of incense, say Caesar is Lord, and we're going to let you go. And the famous reply that Polycarp said, he said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? And he went on, and he says, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And he's referencing there, if you, if you pick up on that reference, do you remember in the letter to Smyrna that Jesus wrote, it said, do not fear the second death. That's the same as everlasting punishment. So he's actually referencing here the letter that Jesus wrote to Smyrna, just so you can see how this must have been such a great blessing to those early Christians at that time who were suffering for their faith. He references the second death. We'll talk more about what that is uh, at this time. But he was burnt alive in Smyrna. And his farewell words are recorded by those around him. And he said this, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of other martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And he, along with 11 others, were burnt at this time by the Roman emperor. This was Smyrna. It was a place of bitter persecution for believers. The word Smyrna actually itself comes from the word for myrrh, which means bitter, bitterness basically, and it was often associated with death. Myrrh was one of the spices that they would anoint dead bodies with, and we remember this from the story of Jesus Christ too. They came to anoint his body with myrrh, and it is a fitting title for the persecuted church. Another early ch church father, a man named Ignatius, who was kind of contemporary a little bit later to this time, but he had corresponded with Polycarp, he wrote an epistle to the church at Smyrna as well. And in that he observes this, he says, I observe that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit, 
and firmly established in love by the blood of Christ. So again, this is another 50 years later, you've got a recognition that this church was still being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 8 in Revelation. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, so we've talked about Smyrna, he says, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, do you remember that description is uh, taken from chapter 1, the picture that we had of Jesus Christ. He says, The first and the last. Now, that is a reference to multiple passages in the Old Testament where the God of the Old Testament refers to himself as the first and the last. This is one of those statements where you, you may have heard someone say to you, would Jesus Christ never claim to be God? It's a constant critique that some people bring to the Bible. He very clearly did. This is one place where he says it very, very clearly. In Isaiah 48, verse 12, God says this, Listen to me, Jacob, even Israel. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And then in Revelation we have Jesus saying, I am the first and I am the last, of clearly assigning himself the attribute and names of deity there. He is using this term because I believe it speaks of the eternality of God. He is the same God who always existed and always will. And then it says, who was dead? Literally the text reads, who became dead? And you may ask yourself, when did God die? It sounds wrong to say that God dies, but of course this is referring to when God died on that cross 2,000 years ago. And then it says that he rose to life again, speaks of his resurrection. The point that Jesus is emphasizing to this church that may well be suffering uh, physical death is that he is the one who has defeated death. Smyrna was a persecuted church. They needed to know that Christ had defeated death and he is reminding them of that fact that happened just, well, for them, it was a, wasn't long ago at all, for us, 2,000 years ago. It's vital that they understand that they possess that same eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is a promise for the persecuted church today. Uh, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now notice, do you remember in Ephesus, he gave some you're doing this well, but you're not doing this right. To this church, he has nothing bad to say about them. No condemnation, no start doing this. They're suffering for their faith. They're holding fast to the eternal word of God. He has no condemnation for them. All he says is, hold fast. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, two things that are very often connected. This is most likely referencing what we would say social ostracization, where they are cut out of civic life. They were a hated class, routinely attacked. They were pushed out of jobs, denied access to services. Any property that they had could quite often just be taken by citizens or by the Roman government without any legal ramifications or protection. Uh, this is quite common in the Roman Empire for Christians. We see this also in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 32 says this, Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, so that's mockery and physical persecution, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So these believers in this part of the world, if the government came on your door, and they said, we're taking your house, we're taking your farm, there was pretty much nothing they could do about it. And the Christians had learned at this stage to joyfully accept that because they knew they had treasure in heaven. Remember, this was a very wealthy city too. 
but it says they were in poverty. And the word for poverty, there's two words in Greek for poverty. This is the word that would better be translated as abject poverty, absolute destitution. They were really, really poor because they had no access to, to the social services of life. Economic persecution, we would call that. It's a very common form of Christian persecution that we find all over the world today. This is quite recent from China. In China, in one of the provinces of China, the authorities were told to take down any pictures of Jesus or religious symbols that they had and replace it with a picture of the communist leader. And if they did that, they would continue to be allowed aid, uh, COVID aid and food support from the government. This is just one example of how this is still going on in the world today. But of course, if they did not do that, which Christians would generally not do, if you know anything about the communist style of leadership, that is one thing that they want to try and get you to do. But they're using obviously basic social services as a way to manipulate people to uh, take down or come away from Jesus Christ. But to this church, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now to a church that is in abject poverty externally, he reminds them that they are in fact rich. They are rich in the treasure laid up for them in heaven, and these are the only riches that matter and the only riches that will really last. Proverbs 13.7 says, There is one who pretends to be rich, but he has nothing. And there is another who pretends to be poor, but he has great wealth. Do you remember the words of Jesus? In Matthew 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the same. They weren't storing up, trying to make a kingdom on this earth. They knew that their future remained in the future realm. And thus, that's where their heart was. That's why they gave this stuff up willingly. These are the true riches, the treasures that are given to us in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Not just the riches of Christ, the unfathomable riches of Christ. There are so many blessings that we get from just being a Christian. He then goes on and he says, But you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I want to be careful how we talk about this text, because through many periods of church history, particularly in what we would class as the medieval period where the Roman Catholic Church was dominating and into the Reformation, it was quite common for state-funded churches to turn the tables really and see what was, was happening to the early church and they would throw this term, synagogue of Satan, at any Jewish people and they would then use it as an excuse for anti-Semitism, for seizing Jewish property and going on and on. However, I'd say that's a total misuse of the term here. So I want to talk a little bit about who this group is, this group that are saying they're Jews and they're not and are being classed as the synagogue of Satan and why seemingly such strong language is being used there. We need to be very careful when we interpret something as a church that is 2,000 years removed from the actual events. We have to do our diligence to understand it within its historical context. That is the work that we need to do as interpreters of the Bible. So there are a few options here. It could be referring to a group of what we would call Gentiles, so that's anyone who's non-Jewish, like we would be Gentiles, most of us here, who are Christians and are saying that we are in fact Jews. Now you may think that sounds like a weird thing, 
I would remind you there's a whole teaching in the church called replacement theology where the people say exactly that. The church is now the spiritual Jews. I don't think it's referring to that. Some people make out that it is. It could be that there are a number of cultic groups that have sprung up in this time, in the first century, that are claiming to be the true people of God. Often the Jewish people are just claimed to be the true people of God. This is not unusual. We see this actually all over the world today. Let me go through a few with you just to give you a feel for this. If you recognize this sort of a drawing, you might have seen these kind of drawings when they're handed a, a little knock on your door and they're handing you these magazines and they'll say, have you uh, heard about the kingdom of God? And you look at it and it's a Watchtower magazine. This is Jehovah's Witnesses. If you didn't know much about the Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim that the 144,000 from the Revelation chapter 7 that we will read about soon that are said to be from the 12 tribes of Israel, they actually claim, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that that 144,000 are the people who are themselves, are the ones who will reign in uh, heaven with Christ. They call them the, heaven, the people who have the heavenly hope. And what they don't tell you is that number's already filled. So when they're at your door telling you, all you can get is the earthly hope, which is your reign on the, on the earth with Christ. And this is how they interpret that. But they do basically say that the tribes, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel are them. So that is one way that... Uh, you get people today claiming to be Jews who are in fact not. And of course, I can't help but point out the uh, lack of diversity in their heavenly scene there. It would not be, not be accepted today, would it? There we go. The Mormons, I'm sure you've seen them. They like their, their very organized, smart suits in town, elder so-and-so, they do, do what they do. They also have some very unorthodox belief. They also, in fact, claim to be Jews. And how they do this is that they actually believe that the Israelites are, uh, and the inheritors of Abrahamic promises are the Mormons themselves. So they would say that the Native Americans were in fact exiled Hebrews from the land of Israel around sort of 600 BC. So the, the Mormons that we see in Utah and all these places today, they, they self-identify as Israelite tribes Ephraim and Manasseh. So again, you see another group of quasi Gentile religious people claiming to be Jews. However, it, that has been you know, very easily disproven through DNA that we have now and, our, and just looking at the archaeology of their book that it doesn't match up. But that's just another example here. And there's just an article on the screen there uh, from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency because obviously people who are Jewish today have a little bit of issue, an issue with people claiming to be from the tribes of Israel. If you're not, it creates a bit of a problem for them. So that's another issue. Another group today, you may have heard of the Anglo-Israel, or British Israelism, as it's called. So this is another group of uh, people who believe that they are the ten lost tribes of Israel. And the story in this one goes that when these ten tribes got kicked out of the land in the 600 BC, roughly, they migrated to Europe and they became the people of England, of course, and thus when we sent people over to America, they then became the people of America. So in fact, when you read in the Bible about Israel, you're actually reading about America and England. And you can see how, see how that goes. I find it nonsensical, but that is another group that is claiming to be uh, Jewish people. And then a very popular one today, you may have heard of or seen these people, they've been in the press a little bit recently due to current events, but these are the black Hebrew Israelite movements. So they are a fringe religious movement in America that don't accept the definition of Judaism. They believe that uh, African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans are all descendants, again, of the 12 tribes of Israel through migration in an earlier time, and they're, they're very militant. 
I could go on with a few more of these different groups, but you get the idea. So there are plenty of examples of people claiming to be Jews who they are not. So it's not unreasonable to think that there could have been something like this going on in the first century. And the apostle is, Jesus is warning, you know, I know what these people are doing to you. They're persecuting you who are real Christians at this time. That could be one example of the sort of thing he's talking about. Or the term Jew, saying they're Jews then they're not, or synagogues of Satan, could be an example of what we would call intra-religious polemic or dialogue. So this would be a debate between Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the New Testament does do this a lot. People who it could just be an example of the way that they would say that if you don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, you're actually fighting against God's purpose, and therefore if you're not fighting for God, you're fighting for Satan, and thus he says, synagogue of Satan. So to, to actually ears that are used to dealing in that sort of a polemic, it wouldn't have been as shocking as it was. They both spoke quite harshly about each other like that anyway, but to our ears, it sounds a little bit harsh, but, but it could just be that. Whoever they were, though, they were persecuting the early church, and Jesus says he knows what they're doing, he can see what they're doing, and, you know, they will get theirs. Let's look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now this for me is really an advance warning from Jesus to this church that things are about to get pretty bad for them. I think we often romanticise the stories that we have of people who were killed for their faith and these wonderful words and statements that they read. But I'd imagine most die terrified, screaming in pain, and you can read many testimonies of that sort of a thing. It's not something we like to think about. He says the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. This identifies the spiritual forces behind earthly persecution of the church. I'll talk a little bit more about that at a later point. Ephesians 6 Paul says, put on the full armour of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against rulers and powers, against the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This goes against a, a modern mindset that obviously doesn't think in the terms of the universe having a spiritual realm, but it does. And there is a force that hates the name of Christ. And this is where persecution comes from in this respect. It says, I will cast you into prison and tribulation for 10 days. We don't really know what the 10 days is referring to, I'll be frank. Most people assume it's a reference to an actual historical period of persecution, like there was some sort of purge um, going on at this time that lasted for that period of time. Some people say that it could have been the 10 subsequent Roman emperors, that all of them persecuted the church. We don't really know, but whatever it does, it shows us that this church was about to undergo some serious persecution. And I want to just use this as a little digression now to show you that this is not just something we're reading about in the past. Satan is about to cast some of you in prison, he said in the first century. Satan is still doing that work today. And this is something that's very hard to talk about. It's something that doesn't get a lot of press because it goes against many of the popular narratives of this world. But we're going to have a little explore of it now. Persecution usually takes a number of forms and it will progress in stages. The first stage is what we talked about, social ostracization. So this will be nothing legal at this stage. This will be a, a frowning upon of believers, uh, pushing them aside in public life, um, mocking them, as Richard Dawkins said, yeah, mock them, make a mockery of their beliefs. 
unfair treatment, calling them ignorant, backwards, wrong side of history, all these different terms that you want to know, because that creates a cultural atmosphere. That is usually the first stage. And then that will usually be followed by what we call legal prohibitions. Thus, when the cultural atmosphere is one that mockery is fair game of Christians, they're considered a nuisance to society, blah, 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 the mood of the culture has changed, it's much easier to pass laws that actually limit them from getting certain jobs, from being involved in public life, from engaging and having social services or citizenship in different areas, and some things will actually make it illegal to practice your faith in certain areas. We've seen this many, many times through history. So that's the second stage. And then once that is in place, the third stage, which is usually physical persecution or death, will quite quickly follow. When the law is on the side of those people who, who want to persecute the church, they're free to abuse, they're free to assault, and yes, they're free to kill believers with impunity and often with the support of the law. And I would ask you, where do you think we would stand in that progression right now? That's a question we need to ask, because there's clearly some warnings going on here, and there's some clearly some writing on the wall, as we might say. Now, we are blessed to live in this world, uh, part of the world where we have, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have that, and they are by far already in that third stage of persecution. You may have seen, obviously, with the fall of Afghanistan, the removal, Taliban has taken over again, and they are... Starting, I'm starting to get quite a few reports of horrible things that you, I won't repeat, but basically they're hunting down the Christians. They're going door to door, they're hunting down Christians, they're checking their phones to see if they've got Bible apps on them, the church has gone underground and they are hiding again. We've seen this many times. Do you remember back when Iraq, when ISIS was taking over the, that part of the world? We had this symbol pop up. This was, it's in a... It's in a it's an N symbol in Arabic. It stands for Nazarene. Remember when ISIS were marking doors of people's houses with this symbol? It was basically a hit mark that Christians live there and they were purging the Christians at that point. This is just a few examples. Persecutions uh, of Christians in the COVID pandemic has increased 60% around the world. This is another way to look at the COVID pandemic that obviously you'll never see really uh, going on in the press, but... I was surprised to actually see an article in The Guardian, and if The Guardian are reporting on this stuff, then you know it must be making, it must be uh, <laughs> quite a lot, you can't ignore it. Christian persecution around the world rises basically because in a lot of these places, it is Islamic governments that will control any aid that gets sent to them, the distribution of vaccines and the access to medical support. And of course, if you're a believer in an Islamic uh, nation, you are a second-class citizen and you do not get access to these things. So there are reports of many, many things going on like that. Now, it also says that the increase, 60% increase over the previous year of Christians who have been killed for their faith. More than 9 out of 10 of these have happened in Africa, bringing it to a global total of almost 5,000 in 2021 alone. In Nigeria, the number has tripled to 3,800 recorded deaths. And this is by Fulani herdsmen or militia, Islamic militia, um, invading no less than 15 villages, burning and destroying 405 houses and churches, displacing about 20,000 people, destroying, they destroy the fields of these farming communities when they do this so that they can no longer provide for themselves. On top of those people killed, basically just shy of 3,000 Christians who have also been abducted. You may have seen it on the news a little bit. It's quite common to have entire schools and villages, Christian schools and villages, abducted in Africa. And 
What happens after that, I'm not going to go into. It's, very, it's, it's horrible to read, it's horrible to say I know, but these are the things that are happening in the world. This was a, an article in 2019. Christian persecution is at near genocidal levels. And this was the one from a, a year before. Christians, the world's most persecuted people. Now you wouldn't think that because in the Western mindset and people who are maybe not believers but just live in a Christian culture, if I could say that, they just assume that the church, when they think church, they think America or they think something like that. The majority of the church is not in America or the West anymore. It's in Africa, it's in Asia, in these places like India where they, uh, the numbers are there but they are still extremely persecuted and there is no other group in the world being persecuted more than believers. Now, I'm going to just stop and step back about this because I mentioned before that we read the text Satan is the one who is energizing this persecution and we don't like to think in those sorts of terms however the fact that this is happening I believe is actually proof that what Jesus says the worldview that Christianity espouses is in fact true because there is no logical reason from a natural perspective if this world is just matter is just all there is why Christians why people who are naming the name of Christ are suffering such persecution around the world. It's something that transcends time, transcends every culture, every nation, every race. If you name the name of Christ, persecution comes your way. And that shows you that there is someone out there. Remember Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hated me. There is something behind this, and we know what it is, we just read it in the text, that always means this is why you get this hatred towards anything that even names the name of Jesus Christ. And that in itself is like a backwards proof that Christianity is true. You know, I've you know, done many times, I, I love sharing with you historical evidences and proofs for the gospel and the Bible. And this is one of those ones that often gets overlooked. The fact that the world is actually exactly what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. There's no way why a man walking in Judea in the first century should be able to predict so accurately 2,000 years of world history. But he has, and it happens, and I've just shared you an example, it's happening just as much today as it was in the first century, if not more. And it's not even the worst place, let me go on, if I can just stretch this out a bit. North Korea, this is the worst place in the world to be a Christian, if you're discovered to be a Christian, it's immediate death, or being sent to one of the labour camps they have there, it's the worst place in the world to be a Christian. Somalia, these are just from the World Watch List. This is Open Doors, a ministry that helps the persecuted church. They always have a ranking of the worst places in the world to be a Christian. If you're discovered to be a a Christian in uh, Somalia, it's generally harassment, intimidation, and quite often uh, what we would class as an honour killing will take place where the family must avenge the honour that you would dare to name the name of Christ. Again, this proves to me that Jesus, when he said the world will hate you, Satan is behind this. He does hate the name of Christ because it's his defeat. The name of Christ is what gave God his victory. Pakistan, this is another place, they have these notorious blasphemy laws, if you've ever heard about these, where it's very easy for anyone to say that a Christian blasphemed one of the teachings in Islam, and then they are dealt with accordingly. They also have a huge problem with young uh, girls being abducted and forced to marry. That's just another problem in the world today. I could go on, I'm not going to, let's leave it there, but I just want to highlight the situation to you because this is very much what this message to the letter at Smyrna is talking about. Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. I have overcome death and this is the reality that we have in this world and it also shows us how shallow much of what we class as Christianity is in the West today. 
I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, this is just a very good example. Joel Osteen, Lakewood Church, Texas, one of the largest churches in America, his most famous book, Your Best Life Now. He says, you must rid yourself of that small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessing, start anticipating promotion, supernatural increase. You must conceive it in your heart before you can receive it. In other words, you must increase your own thinking and God will bring it to you. That's one of his seven steps for blessing in that book there. And if you don't want to read the book, you can even play the board game if you want to there. Now, this sort of Christianity, Jesus has nothing good to say about and he will address it very strongly in a later letter that we deal about. I don't even like to call it Christian. I can't really you know, express enough <laughs> disgust at that. When you look at what we've just looked at and what Jesus was promising the name of Christ would bring to people, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we as Christians in the West obviously don't know a lot of this environment that we're talking about, but we are commanded to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body of Christ. We know that Christians, our hope is not in this life, our treasure is not here, and for those of us privileged to live in a place where we can freely proclaim the gospel and say the things we're saying without fear of reprisal, let's make sure that we are honouring our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot do that and are suffering by preaching the biblical gospel. We can really do them, that's the least we can do for them and that's the most we can do for Christ is preach his gospel and to pray for them. So Jesus here requests that this faithful church be faithful unto death. Now this is a hard thing, isn't it? To be faithful, how would we respond to that a request from the Lord? Be faithful unto death. I think a church that has been told that you'll have a happy life, that everything's going to be really good, we probably wouldn't do that. Those who are living day by day in reliance upon the rock, upon Jesus Christ, upon their saviour, they've abandoned worldly pleasures and they know and they are waiting for the coming of the king, which is what we saw in the beginning of this book. The remnant church, they are the ones who will answer Jesus' call. Polycarp, we read about in Smyrna, he was one who answered this call and he was given the crown of life. There are five crowns in the Bible that are talked about being given to believers for different various things. This is the one for those who go through temptation, tribulation and persecution. In the book of James it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then he goes on, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He will not be hurt by the second death. This is the final promise to the overcomer. Do you remember in each of these letters we're going to see a final promise? To the believer who has endured, survived, suffered or been killed by persecution, physical death, it says you will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the real death that matters if you want to know what that is. Revelation chapter 20, it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it, the death, death and death and Hades gave up their dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is one of the reasons why people don't like the book of Revelation. It causes us to confront our lives, and it causes us to understand things. The second death was actually a Jewish phrase that just spoke of the, of the final destiny of the wicked, um, Again, 
in first century religious culture, no one really would have had a problem with the concept of those things. Today, we don't like. Contemporary years, we find that very unsettling. Uh, it kind of reminds us that we're not the captain of our own souls, that there is someone above us, someone we will answer to. It goes against the modern enlightenment image of man as the pinnacle of rationality, as the ruler of the world, as someone who can create and shape our own destiny. But that is not the reality that we actually have. Now, another question that people raise today is, how could God do this? That's so unfair. What an ogre that God is, that he would think about even doing something like that. That's a question of very modern ears, uh, usually from a society that is so used to elevating itself above God that we actually stand in judgment on God. Now, listen, God has allowed mankind to indulge his delusion of grandeur for a season. We're still in that season. He allows us this time. But what we're reading about in Revelation is a future time, and there has to be a time when that stops and the end comes. Now, because of that, it's worth just clearing up a few misconceptions here too. Much of the imagery of what people would commonly call hell in popular language comes not from the Bible, but actually from medieval art. You know, pictures of horned things with pitchforks and fire and all that sort of stuff. That's just art. That's just medieval art. Remember, they didn't ha not everyone had a Bible. Only the priesthood had a Bible. People used to draw things. Forget about all that. That's not really the concept that we're talking about here. The emphasis in the Bible on hell is actually one of separation. The whole point of it is it is a place where God is not. There's not even any residual light shining in this place. It is a place of complete separation from God. Everything that derives from God, love, beauty, truth, mercy, justice, all of these things are absent from that place. It is vital to remember as we think about this, that was not a place that humans were ever supposed to go to. It was not created for us. Jesus said it was created for the devil and those who would follow him, those people who have been doing all those things we read about to this persecuted church, energizing behind it. It was made for them, not for mankind. In fact, God actually made something else for mankind. He called it the Garden of Eden. He called it paradise, a place where he could walk with his creation. It was supposed to be bliss. Yet, we know that mankind chose to rebel against God and they separated themselves from the Lord and therefore many people will probably end up in the same place as those people who choose to fight against God. Another mistake of the modern mind, a mind that has probably been living in a comfortable existence, living on the inertia of 2,000 years of civilising Christian influence that we're not even aware of, is we assume there is a neutral position. And you see this all the time. You're not persecuting the church, you're not, you're not on that side, you're not a religious believer, you're not on that side, you're just happy kind of in the middle, living a good life, taking care of your family, doing all the things that you can do, and thus why are you even talking to me or thinking about these things? Again, that is a, a luxury that we have based in the comfort of the world that we live in. Most people would not be thinking like that, and like I said, the concept of final judgment was pretty common in this part of the world. However, more than that, People are not, not often exposed to the realities of what Christ's people are suffering around the world. That's why I wanted to share that with you today. Those who name the name of Christ. Justice demands that there is a recompense for the actions of some people. We don't have a problem with that. We understand justice. We have courts in this world that try and do the same thing, albeit imperfectly. What we're talking about here is the time that it will happen perfectly, with no mistakes. There's no neutral ground. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather scatters. This is a serious and hard teaching, I'm aware of that. The second death 
was for Satan and his angels, it was not for mankind. However, tragically, there are those amongst the sons of men who choose to live in that separation from God, and therefore there is nothing that can be done for them. However, remember, God does not want anyone to go there. In fact, he went to such lengths to make it clear that mankind's destiny did not lay in the second death, it lay in heaven with him. He went to such lengths that he actually decided that he was going to step down from his heavenly throne room. He was going to clothe himself in human flesh. He was going to walk in our shoes. He suffered the frailty of human existence. He was tired. He was hungry. He felt pain and anguish in this world. He experienced the life of poverty and rejection. He suffered himself at the hands of evil men, the same men he will one day judge. He was mistreated, abused, spat upon, persecuted, beaten, and ultimately he himself was faithful unto death. Therefore, it says that Jesus has been tempted in every way like us, and he can appreciate the sufferings that we go through. He was talking to the the Smyrnaeans here, a persecuted church. He did not ask of them anything that he himself had not been through. He did all of this to make sure that man would not end up in the second death, to tell them that there is a way to heal that separation that we have from God due to our sin to be born again, that we can be forgiven, restored, redeemed, and we do not need to go to that place we spend eternity with him. And not only that, after he ascended back to his father, he then commissioned his body, the church on this earth, to take that same message across the world to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. They needed to hear this message of how he could be born again. That is, in many ways, the whole history of the world. That is why the Lord waits to come, because every single day, one of the funny paradoxes of this is when things like this are happening to the church, people see it and they notice something different about these people, and the church always grows. That's just history proves that. Whenever the church is persecuted, the church grows. The largest church in the world today is in China, a church where it's illegal in many ways, except for state registered churches. And you see this over and over again. It's one of the paradoxes of this world and it points to a a world in the future. This is why I believe we have this. This is why he says to the Smyrnaeans that Satan is behind this persecution. This is why Jesus said to the church that when you are being persecuted, you don't take up a sword, you pray for those who are persecuting you. It's a very hard uh, concept for us to get our heads around. But the promise here to the overcomers in Smyrna is that they will not, emphatically not, be involved in the second death. Their future is one of unparalleled joy in the presence of God with his people serving him in his kingdom. A persecuted church needs to be reminded of these promises. Remember the last words of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. He says, it is well, I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? He grabbed a hold of the promise that Jesus promised him. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. The second death has no power, no hold, no fear of death, no reason to judge or to look out to fear the judgment of God if you are in Christ Jesus. You don't fear separation, you have communion with him. This is the message that the church takes to the world. This is why it's such an important thing that we preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue and nation. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.